Today we're going to talk with the adventure trio, Sandy, Terry, and Jack Borden. They've been back from their 15-month motorcycle adventure for a while now, and they've found that life is not like it was before they left. We're going to talk about their trip, their gear, and a lot more. And we're also going to talk about what it feels like to no longer be on the road. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. Bennett Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Nikos. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannon. Nathan Millwall. Walter Colbatch. Crystal Boyer-Vaju. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Clyde. Robert Witt. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. The Adventure Trio is Sandy and Terry Borden with their son Jack. In 2014, the Bordens left the U.S. on an extended motorcycle adventure, planned to be 18 months, traveling through Mexico, Central, and South America. They ended up being 15 months, and in the end, the trip has changed them all. I'm speaking with the Adventure Trio, which is made up of the Borden family, Sandy, Terry, Jack. Welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank Thank you you very much. Thanks for having us. You went on a trip. You had a a life-changing experience. And now you're back into what some people would call normal life. But let's start off with, um, I think the last time we talked, you guys were in a hostel because you were cold and tired and you needed a place to stay. And that's where we ended up doing that original interview. At the time, I I believe you were on the road. Was it 10 months? I think you were on the road. That sounds about right. We were in Argentina. Yeah, because we were before, that was before Brazil. Yeah, it was before Brazil. Oh, because it was in Salta. Yeah. 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 That sounds about right. 
So now the trip is over and you're back. So let's just first have a synopsis just of the trip itself. Just a quick one. Wow, Terry, you want to take that? Well, I mean, it ended up a 15-month trip through 15 countries uh, with a whole lot learned. (laughs) (laughs) And which countries were they roughly? Like you went from where to where? Well, uh, from our little town of McLeod here in far northern California to Argentina. So all through mainland Mexico, Central America, uh, and... and, uh, Well, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina twice, Brazil, Uruguay. Yeah, so we covered a good span of South America. Um, We just kind of ran out of time and money (laughs) to keep going. (laughs) You were on two bikes. Jack was, uh, I think when I spoke to you, he was... 13, which would put him at 14 now? I, I turned 15 about three weeks ago. Come on. How did you do that? There's not enough time in there. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't you have a I birthday know. just once a year like the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> Tell his growing body that one. He's all, he started out shorter than me before we left, and now he's taller than Terry. So um, <laughs> I have my secrets. He does. You planned 18 months and you only ended up being 15 months. You said that just because you ran short of cash and, and decided to get home? Well, I mean, the, the, the short on cash happened in um, Costa Rica with Jack breaking his arm that even with a travel insurance plan that took um, with the deductible chunk of the money. You're welcome. And, you know, to, so there's, there's a couple of <laughs> things at play. To, to stay on budget, we, we had to shorten the trip. And it actually worked out in our benefit because we were planning on coming back in March of 2016. And we ended up arriving back home December of 2015, which was a good transition point for Jack to start school for the second semester of his freshman year of high school. Um, and there wasn't there wasn't an odd gap in there. So he was, he was able to start right at the, at the beginning, which which worked out well. Well, that and we had a little bit of snow already in the driveway. So it was already, it was a bit interesting getting up the driveway as it, as it was. And so had we, had we come back in March, we would have been, um, in the snow. In this, yeah, it wouldn't have been good. Sandy, it didn't have anything to do with missing holidays. Oh, <laughs> no, it really didn't. And it was funny cause I didn't realize how much I would miss Christmas and Thanksgiving until we were gone and you would Skype, we would Skype with family and we'd have her decorate our little one bedroom apartment of all 400 square feet of it with little ornaments or (laughs) trying to have Thanksgiving in Guatemala when the oven doesn't work and you can't find Turkey. So there was a lot of baked fried or a lot of fried chicken chicken (laughs) Where are you guys right now? We are in McLeod, California at the base of Mount Shasta. And that's your home. That is. It's home now. Yeah. For your um, your pre-chip planning, what sort of planning did you do? Did you guys get into a lot of details or did you just sort of wing that trip? You know what? We didn't, we didn't have a lot of details, really. I mean, the, the biggest thing, I think, was having a proper chunk of change saved and just knowing what our first border was going to be like. And then from there, researching things as we went along. Do you agree? Or? Yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we didn't have routes planned. We didn't, God, we, we really didn't over-prepare on, uh, well, I already said routes, but I mean, uh-huh. um, no, I, I don't think that we over-planned. In fact, there was, I mean, of course, we paid attention to the news and any major events that might affect our safety, but um, it was kind of refreshing to just wing it and get across the border and see see what the next country was going to bring. 
The the original plan was to go to Ushuaia. That was sort of your rough plan. You didn't do that. No, we didn't. Well, I mean, when we got to Bolivia, we realized that the, the snow had come early in Chile and our route south to Ushuaia was going to be hampered. And I think we had kind of mentally prepared ourselves prior to the, the thought of maybe not making it there. That was in Panama. We started talking about We that. started talking about it because we were really struggling with how fast should we, should we be traveling and, and are we going to make it and are we going to have enough time? And the weather kind of made the decision for us. So while we were in um, La Paz, Bolivia, we went to the Brazilian consulate and got our Brazilian visas. We had not planned to even go to Brazil. And um, so rather than go to Ushuaia, we headed back up into Brazil at Faz de Iguazu. And we rode all the way across Brazil uh, to the coast and then up to Rio, then back down to um, Florianopolis. <clears throat> and then uh, what, was, what was the other town? Well, we went down into Uruguay. Yeah. But what was funny is that we'd meet people or people would say, so where are you? Are you not going to Ushuaia? And we said, you know what? No. Well, you have to. And we would tell people, you know what? You don't have to do anything. You know, what I have to do is what we have to do is slow down our pace and enjoy the ride instead of trying to get to this and tag the space. When people say you have to do something, you just kind of stop listening and do your own thing anyway. Was that a really difficult decision for you to to decide not to go all the way to your planned destination? Um. No, <laughs> I, I I think I it was something that was on all of our minds. But I finally brought up the tough question and and said, if we don't make it there, is this okay with everybody? And we sat and thought about it for a few seconds, really. And we all said, no, I think I, I think that we're good with it. Yeah. Like when people say, oh, you have to do this and you have to do that, it kind of turns the trip into more about checking places off and going to the places you want to go and really taking in what you wanted or what you're first kind of goal of the trip was you kind of when people say that it's more about seeing things that you're just supposed to see instead of just seeing things that you want to see it's it's sort of uh, like the planning process too because you know there's a lot of talk about how much planning you should do it used to be you know before the internet if you're going to plan something there was only limited information available now it seems like there's endless information you can plan it to the nth degree and there's something very cold and calculated in my mind, at least as you're, as you're doing that. And it's the same thing with the destinations when the trip's just about the destination. I mean, we all know that, that reference, don't we, that it's not supposed to be about the destination yet. It's so easy to get caught up in that. And like you say, have people tell you, well, what's the point of your trip if you're not going to make it to the landmark that everyone goes to, but is it important? Um, when you have to say why, why is it so important about the trip that you don't make it to the landmark, then you're missing the point of the trip itself. And you're absolutely right that there's way too much information out there at, at your fingertips that, that oh, it makes you overplan. It makes you overthink instead of just putting down the phone, you know, putting down the computer and just pulling out a map and saying, you know what, let's go over here. This looks interesting instead of, oh, people say we have to go visit here. You know, there was a lot we did and a lot we didn't do. We purposely didn't look at a lot of information that we could have peeked at because I, I wanted it to be a surprise, almost like opening a present. I, I just didn't want to see it before I see it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, and every, everyone's different. Some people like the security of seeing a photo of it or trying to immerse themselves in it visually before they actually get there. And that's okay too. Um, but um, I think that for those that can, that can stomach the mystery, um, that's definitely a, a big part of the trip. 
<laughs> well, it's a different kind of trip, isn't it? There, there are some people who like to travel to say, you know, I've been there and I've done that. I got the t-shirt sort of thing. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you're into. In my mind, it's not my style of adventure. And clearly it's not yours either um, because yeah. you're more into experiencing and also having some surprises, not doing the, the uh, over preparation thing. Yeah, we, um, we spent a total of six weeks in Peru and we were three weeks off road in that. And, um, we hadn't planned on spending that much time off road up in the Andes and we really didn't plan where we were going to stop. We would just take notice of places we were going through and maybe we would have an end time during the day, but we didn't, when, as soon as we said we needed to get to that place by this time and cover these miles, then you're just taking the fun out of it. Uh, and that, especially for us, that's how it feels is that we say we have to be somewhere. Maybe there were a hand one or two times that we said we had to be somewhere. And that's because maybe we had a, something rented for a week or, or yeah, something we had crunch to pick time, up. but it really wasn't that often. It sort of takes you back to the Ewan and Charlie trip. You know, the, their trip seemed to be so focused on deadlines. You know, they had to be here by a certain time and everything about it was almost like a like a panic. Well, it was. You, I mean, you could see it in that movie. And I think a lot of trips go like that, don't they? A lot of trips have that sort of rush where you're you're trying to meet an end. I've just, that's why I asked about the decision because it it can be quite a big thing to say, hang on a second, we're not that worried about that final destination. And so you're obviously happy with that decision. You don't feel like you missed out on anything there. No. And what's funny is that we started off and this is, I mean, I think I was a big part of this is that allowing the past life rush, 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 hurry and go allowed that to dictate what we were doing for the first three to four months of our trip. And there was even a point in it that we stopped and said, are we going to continue doing this? Are we just going to keep rushing along? Are we enjoying ourselves? Or do we, I think it was Terry that said, do we need to slow down and just enjoy ourselves? It just, it felt like we were rushing. And it's funny that we've talked to other travelers, other long range travelers. And they said, yeah, it does take a good four months to really settle into what your new routine is and what your new day to day is. And that, that's probably been the, the, the biggest piece of um, advice we've given to people that are traveling on a similar trip. And we had a family that came through here and stayed with us for a night that were heading south. And they they have ambitions of making it to Ushuaia, which I think is great. And, you know, strategically, I sat down with them and I said, hey, look, <laughs> um, you know, are you OK if you don't make it to that point? And they had actually already talked about it and said, yeah, no, we're, we're definitely not going to hurry just to make it to this point or that point or anywhere. And I mean, that, that's probably the, the, the biggest piece of advice I try to tiptoe into with people without sounding preachy is, is to not have that, that, that base that, that they have to tag and just really try to live in the moment in between and experience the places and the people and the experiences. It's, it's, uh, that's the bulk of the trip. Well, you weren't even planning for your borders that far in advance, were you? No. Uh-uh. I think the biggest things that we checked were cost, uh, if we had to purchase insurance at the border. Yeah. And and then if there are multiple borders, which one to cross? Because which one would be which, which, which yeah, rated safer, which one probably might have less shady people, whatever, whatever would be the safest for us to cross through. Where did you find that information? I think through travels networks. You know, we looked a little bit on iOverlander because, um, you know, on the map you could look and see where the borders were. And, and a few times we peeked on iOverlander just to see which border might, might have been 
the best one to go through. Some were really, really small and a big hassle because they were less sophisticated and others were a little more efficient. And I, I use the term efficient loosely. Um, very loosely. <laughs> one, one, one interesting story about border crossings is, you know, we always did them in the morning. We tried to be clear by noon or one o'clock at the latest, depending on how much of a delay it was. And at Iguazu Falls on the Argentinian side, we were sitting having, having lunch and we were trying to find a place to stay on the Argentinian side. And Jack and I were going from place to place to place. And every place was very expensive or it was booked. And finally the, the guy who owned the little burger stand we were at said, why don't you just cross to Brazil? And we told him, uh, Jack told him in Spanish, it's not possible for us to cross. It's already four o'clock and we never cross in the afternoon and there's too much paperwork with the motorcycles. And he says, Oh no, Brazil's very easy. And we, we shook our head. We said, no, no, no border has been easy. Well, short story long, we, we went ahead and crossed and we were, we were in the country so fast that we didn't believe them when they told us that there was no paperwork for the <laughs> motorcycles in Brazil. We went back and found an English speaking border agent and we asked him in English and he said, no, in Brazil, it used to be very inefficient with lots of paperwork and now it's changed and we welcome tourism. And so we make it very easy. So, um, that was probably the only border that we, that we crossed totally unexpected, very late in the day. And it went, um, it went as planned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Language was something you had to deal with because if I remember correctly, um, Sandy and Terry, your Spanish isn't so good. And Jack was fluent in Spanish. So you, ha you end up having your 13, 14 year old son walking around, dragging you guys around saying, look, mom and dad, we're going to go over here. And this is what they're saying. You had to deal with that the entire time. Jack, <laughs> I think it's a very accurate statement to say that, to say that, they, that they had to deal with me the whole time. Well, it's an unusual position, and Jack, you don't know it yet, but you will somewhere down the road, likely. It's an unusual position to be in to, to sort of have to hand the keys over to your young son and say, okay, lead us. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it definitely introduced a new level of trust, saying that if we have to go right, hey, just telling him, hey, we have to go this, this, that way. Because if I screw something up or if I interpret it wrong it's on me or either it's on the guy giving my directions <laughs> um but did you get flack for that when you made mistakes no 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 uh -uh. no we did just a little <laughs> bit of a look and that was about it no we were, it was good it wasn't until we got to brazil and it changed from spanish to portuguese mm -hmm. and and then we, we were at the border and we go up to the first brazilian office and i'm like i kind of do some mashup of Portuguese and Spanish and I asked lady, Hey, is this and this and that? She understands me. She responds back in Portuguese and I have no clue. I kind of ask, can you say that again? Same thing back to me. And I turn to my dad and I say, we are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was funny is that because Jack spoke for, I mean, this is, I'm not saying this negatively, but because he finished our sentences a lot in the Spanish speaking countries, we didn't, I didn't learn the depth of Spanish that I had planned, but when I was thrown into the deep end of the pool in Brazil with him not speaking Portuguese, I learned a lot very quickly. Um, I mean, it was kind of baptism by fire where you're, you're somewhere and asking how to, how to do something or how to get something in, in Spanish and they're not quite getting it. And then there was always that one Brazilian that spoke a little bit of English and he would kind of get what I was asking and then tell me how to say it in Portuguese. And then, I downloaded a, a, a Portuguese app. It wasn't it wasn't a Google Translate. It was just Portuguese specifically. And then we met some Brazilians who spoke really good English that taught us or taught me some Portuguese. And so 
it kind of proved to me that I could learn a language rather quickly in, in, in immersion um, if I didn't have somebody else there that spoke it. So that was an interesting learning experience for myself. Jack, well, why, I forget now. Why did you learn Spanish? Was it for this trip? I went uh, from, through, from kindergarten to sixth grade. I went to a Spanish immersion elementary school where we used to live in Davis outside of Sacramento. And so our math books, our history books, everything was in, was in Spanish. We learned everything according to whatever curriculum they had laid out. Um, and so my, all my teachers spoke fluent Spanish. My second grade teacher was actually from um, Spain, from Barcelona. And so they just really, I guess that's in the name for a Spanish immersion program. They really kind of got you into it with a more um, kind of guess getting your hands dirty way of, of learning it. Do you think you felt more comfortable than your parents because you could understand the language while you were there? Oh, definitely. I felt like I could dig into a conversation and understand completely what the the other person was saying. Um, I do think, and I kind of saw this for myself, that when they were talking to people, there was probably one or two key things that they might have, if they were alone and they knew some basic Spanish, there were a couple key things that they probably would have not caught and then would have ended up in some troubles down the road. But I feel like this was a great asset for the trip. That's the big difference, isn't it, with learning another language? Sometimes you can learn enough to get by, to ask simple questions, you know, ask about food and fuel and things like that. But it's another, like you said, to be able to get into an in-depth conversation with somebody about politics or about their point of view. Yeah. I mean, because when, when you get to know somebody, it really kind of opens doors because you can really say, oh, where are you from? Oh, is that your house over there? Wow, this town is beautiful. Like, there is... There's more to a conversation than asking, where's the bathroom and can I have another beer? But, um, so what are you saying? How many beers did you order? <laughs> like, but, but, ha- but having a certain, I guess, um, level of experience with another language can definitely get you a better or more solid relationship with people and really kind of not really get them on your side, but get them to really say, oh, wow, these people came all the way here. And wow, they've been telling me their story. Just a better understanding of each other. Yeah. It was good to watch. It was really, it was cool to watch him and his conversations and um, feeling that you're pretty proud of this kid and his skills and his language skills and his ability to hold conversations in two different languages. Um, proud two, parent moment. Two and a half. Oh, yes, dear. <laughs> yeah, and I think Jack said it there. I mean, he became an important part of the trip. I can imagine in, in most circumstances, you know, you take your kids along on a trip, it's usually you dealing with them. And that's why I was asking about that sort of that swap and responsibility. Because in mm-hmm. this case, Jack was a, an integral part of the team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what surprised you guys about this trip? What, like you, you went on this trip, everybody has preconceptions about what they think it's going to be about. What really surprised you about it? What surprised me were kind of like the questions that people would ask us. And like, I know people asked us, like, where are you from? Um, which way did you go? But they would, the two main questions they would ask are, why are you doing this? And they point at me and say, why do you speak Spanish? But, but they don't. Mm. They, they, they couldn't quite get the, um, get why I would speak Spanish and they wouldn't. Did they understand why you were doing the trip though when you told them? Yeah, I mean, because we when we had to, um, we also had to explain since we had the new motorcycles that we weren't these filthy rich Americans on this trip because we just wanted to. We explained, yeah, we did this, we did that, and we didn't just kind of throw everything behind us and go. But 
people were really understanding of like, we just want to go explore and see everything. And people actually responded with, wow, I, I want to go do that someday. I think that, um, the, one of the biggest surprises was how beautiful people in the rest of the world is, uh, beyond what we were told by the, uh, mass media outlets, every country that we went to, people were so friendly and they would say, welcome to our country. Welcome to my country. What can we do for you? Is there anything you need? Um, and just the true beauty of people in, like I said, in every single country. And it's, it's what surprised me also is that when, when you're from the States, you think that the rest of the world is just watching you. Everybody knows the United States. Everybody knows this about us and we're just that important. And you go to other parts of the world and they're, and they ask, so where are you from? United States. Oh, okay. And that's it. We, you realize, oh, maybe we're not that important. And it's kind of funny to, to kind of sit back and think, oh, you know what? I think we're all pretty important on the same level. You and mean then they just weren't interested in digging into it. No, they're, they just, they, no. They had their own concerns about their own exactly. region. And yeah. Then, and then what they, when they would try to dig in, we say, oh, and where are you from in the United States? So we're from California. Oh, so San Francisco? No. Oh, so. Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles. LA. It's like, no, we're north. It's like, oh, so Canada? <laughs> they, because there isn't really much education on geography here. So that was, that was, that was pretty funny to me. One, I mean, the, the thing that I took away from it really was learning a lot about myself. I mean, learning a lot about Jack and Sandy too. But I, I think we talked about this on our last interview with you is for me, I kind of went through life blaming maybe habits or thoughts or ways of dealing with things on maybe being overcommitted with my job or, or overcommitted with this or that. <clears throat> so I would blame things a lot on, on that. Like, well, I can't get this done because of that. And there's never any time because of that. And, and it became evident, you know, six or seven months in that some of those things were still, still there. <laughs> and I went, Oh boy, I, ca I can't blame it on that anymore. So there's, there's, there's some deeper, deeper places to look and it, it, um, it was an opportunity to explore some of that and come back with a different attitude and a different way of looking at things and, and a, just a different, a different approach. You mean for personal excuses? Is that what you're talking about? Oh yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was kind of the king of, well, I, I can't, I can't get, I can't do that because I'm, I'm, I'm working too much or I can't get, get this done because of this other thing. You know, it was always kind of related to things in, in my life that occupied a lot of my time. And then when I had a lot of time, um, I mean, not that the traveling part gives you a lot of free time because you're, you're on the road and you're on the move, but you, you find yourself in your, in your regular day-to-day -day life where I found myself blaming things on other parts of my life that were maybe the cause. And once those things were, were removed and those issues and thoughts were still there, it was time for time to dig a little bit deeper and, and see what, what was really going on. And I, I think you even mentioned that on our last talk about how, how cruel of a place that your helmet can be. And, <laughs> and I've, I've actually thought a lot about that, that statement because it's, it's really true. I mean, you've got a lot of time to sit and, so, and self-reflect. Yeah. The mind is like that, isn't it? I mean, I, and it's so easy to get caught up. I think in, especially our North American life, there's so much going on. It's, I think it's easy to get caught up and go through your entire life and not realize, not, not think it through. And I think that's probably why a lot of people end up with a shrink later in life, you know, to try and sort things out and go, I don't know what happened. I don't know where it went wrong. Yeah. A shrink or a motorcycle. I was going to say, <laughs> you need a buffer sticker that says my motorcycle is my therapist. Yeah, yeah that's so. right. 
<laughs> What's the story about picking the largest dot on the map? Oh, so we were, so back to Peru. There's a beautiful love hate with Peru. I don't think I've heard this yet. Oh, come on now, son. You were there. Um, we were, gosh, it was, <laughs> when you do a hundred miles in a day off road in the Andes, that's a long day. That's a, oh, 60. Sorry, dear. Uh, that's a good nine to 10 hour day on the road. And so we were riding, um, on the, maybe a one and a half wide dirt mud road through tiny villages. And if you see a waterfall off in the distance, you're going to cross that waterfall. And so we had done a day of about four or five of those and buses and collectivos coming at you and everything. And so Terry had found a town to stop at for the night. And, and that's where the, it was the largest dot comparatively speaking to the other dots on the map as far as town size. And so we were headed that way. We went through this one, uh, fair sized town, maybe cut, maybe couple thousand people and passing through and we're waving everybody. People were very friendly and we passed the crowd and then we kept going another maybe 12, 15 miles. And now it's just about dark and we get to the square where we're supposed to stop for the night. And there wasn't a square. There's there maybe one or two people. And we went, Oh crap. We, there's no place to stay here. We don't know what's down the road further from here, but we know what's behind us. So now it's dark. We're at 15,000 feet. We've got to turn around and go back, you know, that 11, 12 miles back to that town in the hopes that we can find, <laughs> find a place to stay for the night. Or a place to pitch the tent. Someplace. And so we get into town and we saw one person and it was one of the guys who we were waving with and chatting with through our helmet when we passed through the first time. And we asked them about a hostel or hotel for the night. And I'll be damned if he didn't follow me and found the one lady who had the one hotel in town with a place to park the bikes. And we were very fortunate that uh, Tianda was still open. We had found the gentleman. And uh, you can't always trust the size of the dot, apparently. <laughs> so we learned our lesson there. We were out a little too late that night. But traveling the way we were traveling those couple of weeks, you're never guaranteed the town that's going to have something in it. When you just said you can't always trust the size of the dot, did you just look over your shoulder at Terry sitting there? I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a lesson that needs just a little bit more rubbing in, I think. Tim, are you here? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think our camera was on. <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> no, it's just funny because, I mean, you each of us would take turns kind of planning and picking where we were going to go and... You just look at the map and you're like, okay, well, this is where we're going to go. And you're like, well, damn, <laughs> I guess we're not stopping there. Did you find so, when you get in a jam that you, that it's the locals that end up saving you out of it? I mean, you know, as far as that being a jam. Yeah. Well, because, oh, yeah. Because if you're in the middle of the Andes and you don't really know what the next town is, like these, some of these locals go to almost, well, they probably go to every town within a period of one to two weeks and you can say, oh. Is there a hotel there? Is there food there? They'll say, yeah, there's something there or there's nothing there. There's everything there. The locals always wanted to help. Always. There was never a time that, uh, that, uh, we found ourselves stranded and without help. And that, that particular pl place was interesting. We ended up with two rooms because one room couldn't accommodate the three of us. I think we might've paid total for the night, maybe 25 or $24, maybe even less for both of those rooms. 
the ceiling was so low, I slept with my light on and the door open because uh, <laughs> I just couldn't bring myself to close Maybe. the door. And uh, <laughs> slept kind of light, but we, we were – we were inside. The bikes were right outside of our room, you know, uh, uh, secluded uh, off the street, and everything was safe. We so. were warm. Our bellies were full, and you know, we were off the road, so that was okay. There's other motorcyclists riding around. I mean, you think these people probably run into motorcyclists, you know, every now and then, and it makes me wonder sometimes if they don't sort of get to know it when they see a motorcyclist coming to town. Those people who like to do that sort of thing, they sort of they sort of go to you. They they almost gravitate to you. I'm wondering if that happens you hear a large motorcycle coming because there are so many small bikes. We were in Uruguay and we were walking. We had a, uh, like a little apartment kind of a thing in a, one of the small town that had some hot springs. We were walking over to the hot springs and I stopped and I heard another BMW 1200 coming down the street. And here I am dancing like a fool in my robe, jump running towards the road because you were flagging down this bike because <laughs> you see each other, but it's few and far between. And it's, uh, another traveler named Sean who was from Seattle. And then he, he pulled in this huge guy and, uh, and said, Hey, I'm looking for the place. Do you guys know of anything? And so when you see each other on the road, you know, whether it be coming or going from a locale, you definitely swap stories and give suggestions and you stay in touch. And we still stay in touch with, with everybody that we've met on the road. And what's what's really kind of, I guess it's, energizing is when you a bike pulls up and they start speaking the same language as you do oh "Oh my god english (laughs) it's a different voice that's interesting because i remember hearing a conversation where someone was upset because in, in in canada it was a place in canada here they were upset because two people were speaking a foreign language and they were saying i don't understand why they just don't speak english and then someone pointed out to them, you know, if you went to another country and you didn't speak the language, you would be dying to speak to someone who speaks your language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we have a definitely, uh, Terry and I have talked about this, a new appreciation for people who travel to the States and don't necessarily speak a lot of English. We will be the first ones to walk up to them and say, do you need any help? Is there something you can do? we can do? And we completely understand your situation. Jack, you have a, a story about a military stop in Colombia. Can you tell us that? So it was our, I think it was after we got off the coast of Colombia, heading down towards Medellin, getting into the, just the re- real top ridge of the Andes. And we're on, we're on a major highway here and we get stopped at a military checkpoint. And, you we're know, waved down. We're, we're waved down to stop. And we're all thinking, oh my God, this is Colombia. We're going to get, we're going to get Shaking robbed, all this here. stuff. And the guy comes up, and we have a li- we had a little plan that I don't speak any Spanish, and my dad just kind of starts rambling on about, oh, it's a it's a beautiful country, so that they can't ask all these technical questions, and so he starts doing that, and the guy says, hi, my name is so and so, welcome to my country, welcome to Colombia. If you need anything, call the army. This is my name, this is my my whatever station number. If you need anything, if you're in trouble, call the army. Wow. We completely rolled into that situation thinking this is it. We're going to get shaken down. Well, shaken down or, you know, you can't help but think of people that have had big problems like Glenn Hegstad or Uh somebody, you know, coming into the road, my my stomach stomach sank and I went, oh boy, I I hope this goes better better than it looks. And it was really that they just wanted to welcome us. Um, So And the smartphones came out from the other guys and they're taking pictures of us and it was just – 
complete 180 from what we expected. Well, I remember one time on the trip where we got stopped just so the, I guess, high-ranked person can step in front of us with his hand up to take a picture on his phone and then, and then wave us through without any questions whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's surprising hearing all of this stuff. This isn't things that you hear. The, the, the same anecdotal story would not be told about someone coming to the U.S. or Canada. No. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys find yourself now spotting travelers coming in and sort of looking to befriend them? We have, we have always tended to host travelers and now we do it even more. We, we pick up strays is what we say. I've, I've, I've come home now twice with motorcyclists um, that were just shopping in town or they stopped for a burger. And then <clears throat> we had some folks from Canada, from Niagara Falls that uh, broke down in, in, uh, the, in Mount, the town of Mount Shasta and a friend of ours from town knew that we rode BMWs and pulled over and talked to them. And they had a broken drive shaft on an R1100 RT. And he called me and put me in touch with the guy. And I went up, went up with my truck and my motorcycle trailer. And we picked up his motorcycle and his motorcycle trailer. And we brought it back here. He and his wife. Yeah. He, he and his wife. And they, they were here for five days while we tore the bike down. And uh, he ordered parts and got it all put put back together. So it's nice to re- to be able to repay. I mean, here we are talking about all this hospitality and, and kindness that we received on the road. And it's really cool to pay it forward uh, both before and after the trip to, po- to, to people that, that have the same level of need. What did you find out about your bikes? You guys were sponsored, as you mentioned, with the BMW motorcycle. So basically, you, you know, you're leaving with brand new, well, not basically, you were, you left with brand new motorcycles. And what did you learn about the motorcycles while you're on the trip? Well, I mean, rewind is that we had the two other bikes ready to go. And so we knew those bikes and knew what they would do. So coming into two brand new bikes that are, you know, with computers computer controlled and, and all this, um, we basically had to, had to learn how to ride two new fully loaded bikes and we beat the crap. I know for me, I beat the crap out of that thing. Well, it wasn't deliberate. I mean, it wasn't deliberate. It was just the road beat it up. I, I think, um, I, I'm not going to lie. I was apprehensive with the level of computer technology that was on both those bikes. I mean, the R1200 especially, um, not being able to see the butterflies move with a cable and not being able to see other things move with, you know, with some other means of mechanical actuation. And um, I was really impressed with how how they both behaved and, and how, how they both lasted. Um, we didn't have them serviced the whole time that they uh, that we were out of the country. We hit the 30,000 mile mark when we shipped back into Miami. And then, then I had them serviced here in the, in the, the U S post 30,000 miles and both were still in spec with the valve train. Um, I had them pull the clutch out of the R 1200 just because it's very easy to do on that water cooled bike. And the, the tech was, was shocked that it looked like it was brand new and it made, it gave me a new sense of, of confidence in the machine. Cause like I said, I was just worried that, that there was too much technology to be that in that primitive of, of, uh, terrain. So Bubba, you want to say something? Yeah. And then one, another reason why we, I, I don't want to say didn't trust dealers, but we were kind of skeptical about him is we were in Guadalajara, <laughs> Mexico. And some people that might better listening might know this, that on the newer model for 2014 and up, they switched to side that the drive shaft is on. And so we were going to get tires changed, um, and the tech comes up. We looks at the bike, and uh, he has his clipboard. He's writing stuff down. He comes up, 
because they'd, they'd never seen a newer model bike before. And he walks up to my dad. He's like, not to alarm you, sir, but your drive shaft is on the wrong side of your motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, thank you. We'll take the tires. <laughs> we got to go. <laughs> no, you can't touch can the skip bike. that okay. service idea. Yeah. <laughs> what well, about I mean, I- what about sure. gear that you took? Um, was there gear that you took that you found, you know, worked great that you would definitely take again? Or, or was there gear that you took that you decided that you'd never take again? And you don't have to say brand specific. I'm just interested in, in actually what you're packing. Um, having the boots that we had that go just below the knee, hard boots that protect your ankle and... Cross boots, basically. Are absolute, absolute necessity. Because Terry had an off in Peru. Jack and I did. Jack and Terry did. And I had a big one in Argentina. And was it, if it wasn't for wearing nice, heavy duty um, boots, we both would have been with shattered ankles. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I still have an ankle that's, uh, that's sore a year later after, after the crash that Jack and I had. But, but those boots saved us. Uh-huh. Um, as far as our riding gear, I learned that there, I don't care what manufacturer it is. Nobody makes the perfect kit for four seasons. Um, we, we traveled with the BMW rally suits, which I've always loved, but you fight with the rain suit because the rain liner's inside. Um, a lot of people don't like that. And when it's raining and you haven't put your rain liner on and you're on the side of the road in your underpants, I tended not to like it either. Um, that being said, I saw people with the climb gear and the heat that, that weren't as cool as they would have liked to be, but they were, they were great in the rain. We met people with the Turtec um, Campanero suits that, you know, had the outer layer rain suit, which was a great rain layer. And that suit was a good, um, uh, good vented suit in the, uh, in the dry warm. But everyone had kind of a gripe about what their individual suit did or didn't do well. And so it was, it was an interesting lesson to, to just see that there's really no, no one suit that does all four seasons perfectly. Having a flip-up helmet is key because being able to, if you're at a border crossing or a military stop, and being able to, being able to just flip up the helmet and flash a big smile and put your hand your hand out for a handshake made a huge difference. So instead of just rolling up, having to stop, take your helmet off. Um, flip-up helmet of any brand, I highly recommend. That's good information. Now, did you all have those helmets? Yes. Yeah, all three of us had a flip-up helmet, so that was perfect. Any other gear that comes to mind? Lots of layers. <laughs> we we did pick up um, we call them ass bags. We did pick those up in Peru. It's a uh, it's we named it that we we named it the <laughs> ass bag, but it's essentially an adventure fanny pack. Yeah, those were handy. Was, it was it it kind of had a belt that went around your waist, and then it clipped onto your leg, and it was like a little leg bag that you could store. Well, I stored like my phone. It was like a fanny pack for your thigh. Yeah. A thigh pack. A thigh pack. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Those were nice. Well, now you're back from this amazing trip that has obviously, you know, really changed your lives in many ways. You sort of went back to quote unquote normal life. Um, Your, that trip was, was a vacation for you. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. You put it on your note there, and I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> so, what you're Wait, saying is it like, wasn't a vacation. Oh no, no! Uh, I, and you, you heard me say the next person that says vacation, how was your vacation? <laughs> is going to get throat punched, and because people think that you're doing this and you're going to go 
you know, sit my ties on the beach. You're going to surf. You're going to stay at luxury hotels. And what people don't realize, and we've had this conversation with so many other long range travelers that you're not going on a vacation. You're taking everything you do in your day to day, normal, quote unquote, normal life. And you're putting it on two motorcycles. You, and actually it's probably even a little harder only because when you're riding, as you know, you're, you're mentally and physically into your day. So by the time you get off and put the kickstand down, you're tired, especially traveling in countries where there's buses and, and collectivos and taxis and llamas and donkeys and all those kinds of things coming at you at all points of the day. So when you stop at an unfamiliar place and you're mentally and physically exhausted, but now it's time to figure out, okay, we need to find a hostel or a hotel for the night, or we're going to camp. Great. If we're going to camp, the boys stay back. All of us have our own chores to do. The boys would set up camp or Jack would set up camp. Terry and I would take off to the market, um, which is, you know, walking into town, walking back, um, preparing dinner from scratch and your day ends at about eight, eight thirty, but not until you get some laundry done as well. And so by the time that day ends, you're, you're toast, you're pretty exhausted. And so, you know, it's rinse, repeat every day is the same, unless you're fortunate to be able to stay in one location for a couple of days, then you have the time to kind of sit and relax and enjoy where you are and, and enjoy the, the town, enjoy the people, enjoy the scenery. Um, but a vacation it's, it's not, it's a, we made the choice to take our life simplify it and put it on two motorcycles for 15 months. And seriously, seriously, there are days being back here, though we have really simplified our life now, there are days that we will be outside and Terry looks at me and we'll just say, can we just go to Mexico, please? Or just we'll go to Guatemala? Because you don't realize that the life on the motorcycles, though still is a life, with the chores and obligations is much simpler than, than being back. Terry, when you were on your trip and we spoke the last time, uh, you told a story about departing and, and you'd sold your home and you'd bought another, uh, a less expensive home and you were sort of having a party there and you said one of the neighbors came up and you were fully expecting the, the horrible story of you're going to, you're going you're to get killed in Mexico. And he said, good on you, you know, basically go for it. You're doing a great thing. And he said, every day here is the same. And that really struck a chord with you. I could tell by the way you said it, but now you're back to life where every day could very possibly be the same. Is that what's happening now? No, I mean, here, here, life here for us is, is so much different than it was for us in suburbia. I mean, of course, it's easy to fall into a routine anywhere that you are. Up until just a week or so ago, um, I was working from home as a consultant, and every day really was different because uh, the workload I, I had control over and could uh, could take time where I needed to to do the things that needed to be done. So, so far, we've been able to 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 make the days not feel like like, uh, like, uh, groundhog day, you know, I mean, since Jack has been back at school, of course, there's a routine in the morning where he's up at a certain time and we take him to school and you know, that, that stuff happens, but we have tried to mix the days up. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy because it, it is easy to fall into a routine. I mean, it sneaks up on you and very quickly you could be back into just doing that same thing over and over again. 
Um, but I think with where we started, what we did and where we're going, we've been able to hold that off. That's one. And, and two, people have, have used the term with a trip like this, because for a lot of people it is a trip of a lifetime. And we don't, we're, we're not looking at that trip as our trip of our lifetime. It's a trip of our lifetime. And we plan to do, to do more at some point. So, um, I think that that's kind of what helps keep us driven to not fall back into some mundane routine that, um, that makes us feel like zombies. <laughs> Jack, what about you? I mean, on the trip, you were the Spanish speaker. Um, you're the young guy that's on this amazing trip with your parents. You're from a foreign land. You got a lot of attention. I, I know for that. And now you're coming back and you're going to school. I assume you're, you're making new friends at this school. Are, do you find it's a, it's sort of anticlimactic? Um, the school I go to is, well, every day is kind of the same, have the same classes every other day. And, but, um, the school I go to, it's a very interesting school. Like I'm taking shop right now and I'm learning how to weld and I'm in band class and I'm going to go to Santa Cruz with the jazz choir next year. All, um, then we're going to go to Stanford and all those different places and like stuff is, um, it's, it's, it is kind of the same thing every day, but I have, I have like certain community commitments here in McLeod and I have friends that I hang out with and like every day is kind of the same, but there's usually a few things that really bump my day up and make it interesting. A lot of people go on a trip like this and they find that once they get going, they, you know, they don't want to stop and they, they, they come back with almost regrets in a way that, that, that it's ended too early or ended too soon. Do you guys think that, it, that it's a possibility that it's, this actually made you maybe appreciate life at home more, or do you still have that longing for the road? I, I definitely appreciate what I have a lot more. I mean, cause, um, I've had, I've, I've had some pretty dodgy places that I slept in. I will admit uh, that nice, has, that has nice a bed <laughs> that, um, that sometimes a bed has a big dent in it from the last 150 people that have slept in it. Or, um, maybe even sometimes getting a hotel room with one bed and the air mattress on the floor. But, um, yeah, I mean, it de- definitely pre- makes you appreciate what I have. Like, Oh, I have my desk back. I can, I have my motorcycle back. I have, oh, I have LTE phone service that I can go around and do this, this, and that. And like, because back, I had to kind of not really change my ways, but say I had to limit myself. But I do appreciate kind of, I guess, the 21st century things that we believe that we have here in the United States a lot more. I kind of really take that into consideration or take that and put that into perspective with what I had on the road. How about you, Sandy? You have mentioned about the, the holidays. I think I brought it up there because I'd, I'd read somewhere your posts about something to do with holidays. And I could tell your excitement in that post about celebrating the holiday. Has there been some changes like that for you? Um, there's definitely more of an appreciation, whereas I looked at maybe family gatherings and holidays um, as obligations, more of an obligation than as a want. And so what was interesting is that before our trip, my dad was, um, uh, 83 years old and he told me you're going to be gone. How long? Well, I'll be dead by then. I'm just, (laughs) no, you're not. And he isn't. And he will be, uh, 86 years old this year. So I have a greater appreciation for spending time with the family. Um, there definitely is still a draw to be on the road, but I think that had we not done this trip, had we not gone on this journey, I would not know what kind of balance I want for the rest of my life. 
when you were we were talking about before you left last time uh, on this trip, uh, the different things that people were saying to you, and you were even mentioning that you were sort of caught up in a in a sort of a life that was uh, you know all about what you have, or a lot at least for a lot of people it was about what you have and what you've accomplished. Has that changed for you? Do you find a, a different uh, feeling for where you're living now and, and the way your life is now? Absolutely, Jerry. You want to finish that? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, where we were before, again, in suburbia, it was about what you have and what you did for a living and where you went to school and and all of those badges of honor. Um, the locale that we live in now, I mean, it's it's more of a community feel. It's it's a town of a thousand people. Um, people jump in and help each other when there's things that need to be done. If there's someone that needs help, there's there's you know there's uh, people that will go out and do that uh, either for us or we go out and help help other people and there's not that that measuring of what I have what I do where I went to school as a badge of who you are and I think for us having done this trip those things for me are a lot less important so I don't find myself referring to my job title as who, who I am um, where before if somebody asked what you do, it was your job title and how many years you've been doing it and the successes and, and that, that, that path. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's just a natural response. I'm not criticizing it. It's just been kind of interesting to, to see it change with the, the change of locale for us and the change in, um, in life decisions that we made along the way. And perspective. And perspective for sure. Yeah. You're home now. Is that the end of the adventure trio in a big sense? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, with Jack being 15, I mean, in six months, we'll have his permit. So we've had I'm this- thinking about it in six months. I could ride myself to school and be the sophomore who rides himself to school on a motorcycle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> oh, this just opens. We've had a really great span, a 10 year span of being able to travel you know, whatever, for whatever length of time as a family and not really have any consequences. And now with Jack being in high school, which I think the time that we came back was a good time for him to be back in high school. And, and he really wanted to enjoy these next three years, which is fine. Um, it, it makes all, it, it, I'm happy that he found his, his landing spot, but next summer he'll be on his own ride. And so this is a whole new chapter of, you know, where, what are we going to do next? I guess of, of, um, traveling ability. Yeah. Now he gets to carry all of his, all of his own crap. (laughs) (laughs) In your sleeping bag. Oh, and here's your two large pair of size 13 shoes. And here, son, we went shoe shopping in Nicaragua and I said, Oh, because it's in European size. They said, Oh, I'll take you have size 48 and these running shoes. I look at my feet, point at them and laugh at them. (laughs) Shopping was a bit tricky. So are there any short-term plans on the table? Short-term plans. Well, it's, I think, probably getting our, our bank account and ourselves healthy financially and not rich, but just healthy again. So when we want to take off, then, you know, the next time, um, we'll, you know, we'll be okay. Um, I think finding that groove of, of work and travel um, is a good short-term plan. And then taking off at least next summer for, for a bit of time with Jack and, you know, writing for the first time as three on three instead of three on two. So who knows? We'll head North. 
we head to Mexico, head east, who knows where, where we'll end up. It is something to go on a big, long trip like that and come back. And, and all of a sudden, I think there's, in my mind, there's a lot that sort of comes to an end. There's, I mean, I know even for our trip just this summer, as it comes to an end, yeah, I'm sort of sick of camping in a way. Yeah. Uh, and I look forward to, you know, just having an easy hot shower. You can just jump and everything becomes easier when you get into a house. Mm-hmm. But there's also that loss, I feel like, of that. I mean, I like that getting up in the morning and not really having a destination. Right, right. Um, I mean, we definitely, for the for the four months it took us to get into the trip, we didn't realize it was going to take us four months to adjust to being back really? and off the bikes, yeah. at least that. And I mean, there we spent a lot of time on our travels um, in the fall and winter seasons. And then we came back to the States. We came back to Miami and rode across the Southern States back to California. And we landed December of 2015. Um, We didn't realize that coming back into winter with, you know, the short days, days, the snow, there, there is a certain level of, I'll say depression of, Oh wow, we're back. And um, there's not a lot of sunshine and, Oh, I think I'll go fetal for the day. I mean, you, you really have to kind of plan coming back into the proper season. And we, I even messaged with another couple that we had traveled with and they, they went back to Germany about almost the same time that we came back home here. And she had the same feelings that I did saying, I think it was a mistake leaving in winter and coming back in winter. Um, because not only do you have to adjust to being home where, which was basically a new home for us, we have a new routine where we have a, a whole new life that we have to figure out. So you, you really have to give yourself time to adjust and know it's okay. If you're not feeling a hundred percent one day, you'll get there. Um, and that was, a uh, something we really had to learn. We thought we, w- we could jump back into the usual and it didn't work out that way. I mean, even things for me like going to the post office and having to open the mailbox and see stack of mail that could be anything from junk mail to a bill was 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 overwhelming. It, it took six, eight, or eight weeks to to overcome that where I didn't have anxiety walking into the post. <laughs> and I know it sounds stupid, but I mean, it really it, it really after you, you're not dealing with that for so long to come back and just have this barrage of information, whether it be television or print mail or whatever, was. Um, it was a bit overwhelming. We still don't have cable or we still do not subscribe to the mass media. Um, I, we, Terry and actually, Terry and I actually took off this weekend just to have adventure duo, duo weekend. And we were at a place where there was cable TV and it was probably one of those, it was horrid. <laughs> <laughs> the advertising and the, the, the sensationalism, sensationalism and the over the top, Dun, dun, dun. Don't go to this country. Don't do this. Uh, don't do that. It was a little, it was a little overwhelming. Okay. A lot overwhelming. Well, you're talking to someone who lives a little bit under a rock. I haven't had television for, <laughs> I don't know, 30 years now. I mean, I, I'm so out of the loop. There's just things right. that I don't get. Yeah. It's bizarre. I know. It's, no, it's good. Now it, who's this Justin Bieber film? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> see, I, I know the Justin Bieber thing because, or Bieber <laughs> thing, whatever it is. I know that because of my kids. There's, there's, there's some stuff that I've sort of, I'm privy to, I guess, in a way, but mostly, you know, people will talk about television shows and it's just like, I mean, I don't get, they make little jokes about things, you know, like you do when you get used to something. Uh-huh. And, 
And of course, you can't get them if you don't know. And, and I don't even know the shows that are that ran for 10 years and no one haven't, haven't been on the air for, for five, 10 years. I don't know them. <laughs> so people yeah, even refer to that and I, I don't get it. But but it's interesting because going on a trip like that, that's one of the disadvantages I see it um, from listening to you of selling everything off and then coming back to something new. Because although Jack got to go to school, and in a way, I think that's almost a blessing to be able to f- be forced to go to school and you've got a routine you go to, but you guys came back and sort of have to start from scratch again. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good life lesson, really, because you, 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 you're thinking, so all these new skills of patience and um, calm that you find on the road. How do I incorporate that now into my day-to-day routine? A and B, will they stick? I mean, we were multitasking just, you know, to the nth degree previously. And now I refuse to be somebody who's doing five or six different things at once, just because you miss the value. And maybe that one thing, and you're not, you're not putting your whole self into one project, project. you're doing parts of you into five or six different projects. And and you're not any more productive. I mean, I used to be the king of spinning a dozen plates all at the same time. And I would crow about it and, you know, brag about it. And then since I've been back, I can do a lot more by focusing on one or two things at a time in the same amount of time. And I can actually complete more. So I've, I've taken that to the, to the, to the workplace, so to speak, where, people are driving you to do things that don't make sense. And, you know, rather than, than be a conformist and just step in and say, okay, I'll do it your way. I'll dig my heels in and say, no, I'm going to show you that why my way is more efficient and, you know, sit back and learn. And, and it, it's, I, I think it's been, it's given some people that I've worked with, um, something to grow on themselves where they look and go, oh, you know what, you might be right. Maybe this crazy experience of this, travel and this life change can actually make you grow and make you learn things that you never thought that you would, that you would, you would figure out. So do you think there's something that we in the, in the Western world can learn from countries who may not be advanced as us? Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Slow down your pace, enjoy each other, um, be appreciative of a hot meal, be appreciative of a bed. And live in the moment. Yeah. Instead of just living for the weekend or living for, to tell someone a story in a week about what this moment was like, but you really don't remember what it was because you, you weren't living it. Try, try and live it. You know, I mean, we have, we have, unfortunately, you know, we've already lost a friend this year to cancer and we've got a few other folks that are sick and, and, you know, they didn't get the chance to go off and do, do some of the stuff. And, and when people tell us someday or next year, or I have somebody I know that for, 15 years has been telling me in five years, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. You know, the only preachy thing I say to people is try to live a little bit every day or at least every week, because you just don't know how long that you have as cliche as it sounds. It's really true. I mean, that's it. It's not just a saying and it's not, it's not a joke. Do you think the changes that you guys have experienced are lasting changes? Are they going to be there for the rest of your life or, or is it going to need sort of, um, you know, booster shots that, that are going to take you back and say, Oh yes, then now I remember. We'll see. I mean, Jack says you said, oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because I guess the one thing it'll probably kind of, I don't guess, remind me or kind of come back will probably be the, um, I guess the appreciation of the difference what I have here from what I had on the road, kind of like knowing where I was going to sleep the next night. Oh, I have a desk. I have this. I have that. 
all this, all, all, all that kind of stuff. I'll take a booster shot every once in a while. If a booster <laughs> shot means we need to take another trip soon, then I might need a booster shot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but if you mean the core, just the core, you know, did, did it change our core for myself? I could say it definitely did. And I, I look at everything in my life different, it, differently every day. Even when I find myself maybe uh, feeling the itch of an old habit, my my new my what I call my, my new self takes over and says no that's it, it's not worth it you know you've done all these other things and this is how we look at things now and it it it's definitely a, a stronger force. I'm still in scavenger mode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm still in the mode and we came back and we we are now. I mean we stayed in our travel budget. Uh, I mean, even since we landed back home, we still are. and we still are in travel travel budget. And I've become like Terry's grandmother where I'm keeping all the little plastic containers that the salsa or the sour cream comes in because those are good containers. And why would I want to go out and buy some at the store? (laughs) And and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You know, like our parents and our parents' parents did all that. I don't understand why people aren't doing it now either. We we do the same thing. You think it's too good of a container to throw out. Thank you. One other thing that, that we learned on the road is that, um, Things are going to happen, whether it be Jack's broken arm, whether it be the stomach flu, whether it be a flat tire crash. or a crash whether, whether or anything be a broken wrist. or any of that. Those things are going to happen no matter where you are. It's how you deal with them in the moment that helps predict the outcome. Um, in this, With Jack's broken arm, we were in the middle of the rainforest three hours from any major city and but Terry found the one doctor that had the one ambulance and she spoke English and she facilitated everything in the big city for us. And the ambulance carried all of our luggage. Terry contacted Terratech Costa Rica. They held the bikes for us. And even though Jack broke his wrist, how we dealt with the situation turned out positively. Um, we were in Guatemala and each of us had the stomach flu at different points in times. Oh, that was fun. Three days from Christmas morning. But fortunately, we weren't in a tent. We were in beds, and and that's going to happen. But we were not in a, in we weren't in the middle of nowhere, um, and we were fortunate to have a roof over our heads. So I've learned that we'd like to tell the people that these things are going to happen. It doesn't matter if you're in the states. It doesn't matter if you're home. How you deal with that situation, you've got to look at the positive aspect of it, and the outcome is based on how, what you do with that situation. And does that mean you don't worry as much now? Um, I don't, I don't flip out at a situation. If something happens, why, why get mad about it? It's happened. You're going to waste energy that you need in order to solve the situation. Now, the story of Jack's broken arm, we talked about on the last episode. I don't want to give it away. I know it was something heroic he was doing. But for the listener, they're going to have to go back and listen to that first interview to find out Jack's heroic broken wrist story. Sandy, Terry, Jack, great to talk to you again. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks, Thanks Jim. I appreciate you. it. I've been speaking with the Adventure Trio, which is Terry, Sandy, and Jack Borden. You can find out more about what they do and what they've done by visiting their website, www.adventuretrio.com. Now, you can also listen to that original interview we did with them. If you go by our website and find the, the search button there and type in Adventure Trio, you'll come up with that original interview and find out what happened with Jack's arm. Now, we aren't quite done yet. Coming up in a minute, we have a couple of riders that have produced something beautiful that you may want for 2017. Stay with us and find out. 
We got an email this morning from a fellow named Wayne, and Wayne suggested that we do a piece on sizing gear because he finds that the jackets he's tried don't fit him very well. And he said they seem to be made for, you know, sort of standard size people, which don't really exist. Now, I mentioned this because Aerostitch, one of our show supporters, manufactures their suits in 41 sizes. Think about that, 41 sizes. Now, the reason for it is so that you get a jacket that fits you better. And for a motorcycle jacket, something you plan on keeping for a while, um, you need a great fit, not just a good fit, but a great fit. 41 sizes, all of those sizes come in short, regular, and tall versions. Now, they sell factory direct because they have so many sizes and they're experts at mail order fitting. They've spoken with thousands of riders about their size, their bike, their riding climate, their habits, uh, their riding habits, so that they can get them into the correct setup and they can do the same for you. Also, get this, they offer free size exchange return shipping in the U.S., Visit them at www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Make sure you do that forward slash ARR because that lets them know you come from here, that you've been listening to them on Adventure Rider Radio, but it also will get you 10% off your order or free shipping if you're a return customer. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And whenever you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Alberto Lara and Naomi Tweddle are hardcore adventure riders, always looking for new places to explore. Naomi is from Canada. Alberto is from Peru. They both live now in Canada on a small island in British Columbia. And although they have regular jobs, they spend all their spare time riding by the looks of what I can see and exploring and also expanding on Alberto's side passion. And that's photography and that passion for photography and photographing these incredible places that they pair get to visit has allowed them to amass a huge amount of photos, really nice photos. And some of those photos are now showcased in a calendar they've made for 2017. I'm speaking with Alberto Lara and Naomi Tweddle. Alberto, Naomi, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. We're happy to be here. Thank you, Jim. Very happy to be talking to you again. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked. I think the last time we talked, we were talking about going riding in South America, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think we were discussing Peru and how awesome it is for adventure riding. Now, you guys just returned from a trip into Utah, I believe. Yeah, that's right, Jim. We were just down in Utah on the WRs for three weeks. Very nice. So what did you find in Utah? Uh, well, what we found was some amazing riding and uh, some really nice weather, actually, for us Canadians getting into fall here. Um, we left, we trucked our bikes down from Canada, down in, we, to Three Step Hideaway, which is conveniently located uh, really close to the TAT and pretty close to the BDR in sort of mid-eastern Utah. And from there... We've rode some of the BDR, some of the national forests and the mountains, and we basically just did this loop kind of in southern eastern Utah, just taking in as many trails we were curious about and some of the sites in some of the sort of more popular national park areas. So just wide open, you're just riding wherever you feel like going each day? Pretty much. Like We, we had the sort of four weeks of vacation time frame. And then I had some tracks that I got off of, well, the BDR tracks from the BDR group. And then I got some tracks off of ADV Rider. 
and just kind of had those plugged in there. And then when we were riding, we would just explore trails that looked interesting and kind of just went with the flow. Yeah, I didn't know where we were going. I don't usually pay attention to the maps or all the tracks that Naomi downloads. So I just I just ride and <laughs> enjoy the views. What did you find great in Utah that you didn't know was there before? Um, honestly, just the overall package of the riding really surprised me. Um, there was just an endless amount of trails, no matter where like obviously the people of utah are really into their recreation sort of ohv trails whether it's quads side by sides jeeps um it just seems like they have a really strong community that's into those types of hobbies so whether you're in somewhere more popular like moab obviously there's tons and tons of jeep type trails and quad trails there but we found just even in the national forests uh, we'd explore up a quad trail and then it would connect to another road and then there'd be an, like another like three that you could pick to take keep traveling south as we were um, so yeah, the diversity and, and in was the middle just... of nowhere yeah in the middle of nowhere in the mountain you'll see all these trails and they are all well organized they have signs and they tell you what's allowed on the trails or not and lots of hunters I guess use them and uh, yeah that was that was pretty surprising how strong that uh, recreational trails are in in Utah is that why you guys chose Utah to go to for your vacation uh well we didn't actually know we were gonna have so much amazing riding at our fingertips uh, what drew us there was the unique landscapes that you i mean utah i think probably is in the top probably five states in the u.s like along with like yosemite park and stuff for like iconic photographs lots of the arches or just those like desert landscapes and the canyon lands and stuff so that really sort of drew us towards utah just that sort of unique very different type of landscapes and scenery than what we typically have in Canada up here. Well, is that what you were hunting for as photographs? We're always hunting for photographs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because of course, yeah. that brings us to what we were going to talk about was the fact that you guys now have a 2017 Adventure Motorcycle Calendar out. That's right, Jim. That's right. We partnered with Octane Press. Um, that's the publisher of the calendar. Um, and it features photos from our motorcycle travels. So uh, how did you guys get into making the calendar? What brought that on? Um, well, it's just about uh, sharing and inspiring other people to um, to go out there and explore and travel, uh, not necessarily on motorcycles. I mean, that's what we like doing, right? But a lot of people do uh, stuff like this on bicycles or other transportation. But yeah, it's about like sharing and inspiring other people. Well, there's no doubt you have some great photographs in here, and the calendar is gorgeous. It's a nice full-size calendar that uh, is, um, I guess, typical of, of our industry, of this, this size of calendar, this big, beautiful, color, heavy-duty calendar. But I, I thought you were going to say that um, that's your excuse to ride. <laughs> I think we do just the same amount of riding that we used to do before. But yeah, for sure, being aware of like there might be a good chance to get a, a good photo for a an upcoming calendar is it's always in my mind so yeah unique places like utah um uh, different place we had a chance to go to europe uh, earlier in the summer and uh, we rode a little bit of the alps in 
in Germany, in southern Germany, in northern Italy, and Austria, and that was also like just absolutely gorgeous there. Well, this Adventure Motorcycle Calendar for 2017, where do the photographs come from for this? Um, a bunch of the photos are from a trip we did in Peru uh, a couple of years ago, and then from other trips that we've done uh, through the U.S. And, and Chile and Argentina uh, when we went across the Americas. Uh, yeah, so the photos are capturing travels that we've done on a few different bikes. So the the Beamers are in there, the 200cc Kiwis, and then the Yamaha WR250s are also in there. You've got one in here in particular that's of a bike crossing a bridge. I, I think that one's in Peru. Can you tell the story behind that? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I say bridge. I'm, I'm going to have to add that that's a really loose term for what I'm looking at. We were lost. So that's what was going on. We were totally lost. <laughs> but go ahead, Naomi. Oh, um... So, uh, I mean, if you, anyone, I mean, you have lots of people that come on your show and pretty much everyone will tell you that like timing when you drive the Americas um, is sort of key if you want to avoid the rainy season. Um, but as like, as a, myself and Alberto do, we kind of generally wing most of our trips with like a general kind of foundation. So we were traveling through the Andes Mountains in Peru, and it was kind of the tail end of the rainy season, so you'd get sort of showers that would go through. And unfortunately, this particular area, the mud had a, like high clay content, so we were just we were just slipping and sliding literally everywhere. Like we we stopped in the town maybe twenty kilometers before that bridge to ask for directions and. While we were trying to stop, it was a hill, and this lady was outside her house. Alberto just started sliding out of control, had to bail, and his case is breaking off. It looked like his bike was having a yard sale. There's all these pieces hanging everywhere. <laughs> so yeah, he didn't look very like, pro asking for directions for starters. If you, can, if you can picture my bike, the tires weren't actually moving, and my both feet on the side, and I was just going down, like sliding like a ski <laughs> downhill. <laughs> So anyway, so we're, we're on this road after asking for directions. We get directed to this road. Um, basically, through Peru, there's this highway called 3N that kind of goes through the entire Andes. So more or less, when you do these little detours through little towns, you're always sort of veering back to this road. So we're basically asking, like, okay, how do we get kind of back on like Highway 3? So we're kind of, we're like riding through farmland and... The road's really muddy, and there's like all you see is just sort of farm animals and people walking and pedestrians. So, like your feet are sliding away from the bike. We're dropping bikes. The tires are completely caked. Like there's nothing moving. It took us hours and hours and hours to make it. Just like these ten kilometers or twenty kilometers to where this bridge was, and like we look at this bridge and we're like, oh my goodness. Let me interject here. I know what happens here. You look at this bridge and Alberto says, this is fantastic. Naomi, ride across it so I can get a photo. (laughs) Actually, it was the other way around. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. Naomi was Alberto's the one in the photo. Well, yeah, I'm I'm the one in the photo. Naomi is like, I'm going to take a picture of you. It's going to be a cool photo. And I think she was really being like, you go ahead and try that bridge first. And if, if you don't fall, then I'll go. I'll follow you. <laughs> so 
so she snapped the photo. <laughs> we obviously, like, even though the bridge was sketchy, just there was no way we could go back because of the mud and how much work and effort it had already taken to get to that point. Wow, it's just, uh, it looks like one of those ones you really want to think twice before you ride across. But it looks like it's pretty well traveled. By people on foot and donkeys, yes. Oh, there you go. That's that's inspirational, isn't it? <laughs> so that's the one good thing when you're on a bike, right? At least you're not in like a four-wheeled vehicle. So you know you have a little bit of a weight advantage. And um, obviously, you're talking to me in Alberta, so we made it across the bridge. <laughs> we both survived. Yeah. Well, we saw some donkeys go in the opposite direction, and they were loaded up with stuff. So I thought, if the donkeys made it through the bridge, I'm sure my bike is kind of the same weight, so I'll, I'll just go through it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like some of those bridges you see in photos from people crossing Russia. Uh, there might be a few holes here and there, but as long as you pick your line and kind of take it easy... It all works out in the end, right? As long as you make it across. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So once you make it across the bridge, uh, the road actually became a lot more rocky um, and not so muddy. So we started making good progress. And then we eventually met the main road. And that was when we discovered that the directions we got, either there was a miscommunication or the lady is only familiar with like the walking route. But vehicles don't typically take the road we took, it's usually just the animals and the people walking. And then there was like a main road that trucks bring in goods and stuff to the town take. And then once we got to that main road, it was a very stark difference in the condition of the road. Well, the calendar is called Adventure Motorcycle Calendar 2017. And I imagine you can get it at, uh, where, at Amazon. I would assume just about anywhere books are sold. Yeah, Amazon's yep. a big distributor. Um, if you go to our website, we have the links for the different regions and countries. And obviously, Octane Press is the publisher. So if you go there, um, that's the base. Yeah, our website is uh, motolara.com. And at the top, you can uh, click on Buy Calendar, and it'll give you all the different links for, like Naomi said, different regions and countries around the world. Well, of course, we'll put those links in our show notes. Naomi, Alberto, Good luck with your calendar. Great to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks, Much Jim. appreciated. Really appreciate it. I spoke with Naomi and Alberto from their home in British Columbia, Canada. You can find out more about them by visiting their website. And it's got some great photography on there. Visit motolera.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. <laughs> BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. My name's Jim Martin. Now there's no excuses. It's time to get out there and ride your bike. But hang on, before you do, there's two things you can do for us if you'd like. One, drop by our Facebook page and like it if you haven't already. Maybe just interact with it. You know, let us know you're there. Um, The other one would be to drop by our website and click on the donate button. If you can do it, it would really help fill the gaps here at Adventure Rider Radio. And as you probably know by now, this is built on a model of some advertising and some donations to make the whole thing work. Thanks in advance. See you next week. Now, get out there and ride your bike. Hey, and by the way, if you listen after this, very unusual for this. We've never done this in a show before, but if you listen after you hear the motorcycle, you're going to hear a little uh, soapbox. It's not an outtake. Well, I guess it is sort of an outtake. Well, anyway, listen to it. So one thing we talk about in our presentations is, um, this is where I get on my soapbox moment, is the amount of plastic and trash that is in our waterways and and what we're doing and polluting the planet. So as as environmental or lack thereof as some people are, we got to see firsthand the amount of plastic floating down the rivers. We we were up in 13,000 feet and there are these amazing rivers littered with plastic along the sides. Um, dump trucks uh, just dumping trash into waterways. When we were in Rio, people saying, oh, the, the, that the waterways cannot be as polluted as they are for the Olympics. And what was the color of the water, Jack, that you said it was? I called it nu- nuclear green. Um, and we just, we saw the amount of pollution and the amount of trash. And so before we left, we were filling up two garbage cans full of trash every week. And now that we're home, we don't even fill up one. We're very... We're lucky to have two bags of trash. We're lucky. So we are much more conscious of our output, much more conscious of what we what we purchase and consume based on packaging. And it's not that, that the people in, in, in these other countries, it's it's a lack of education. It's not that they, they think that they know that they're doing it, but the indigenous cultures that there's nobody there telling them that because you throw it on the ground or because you float it down the river, that doesn't mean it goes away. It just means you can't see it anymore. So I think that with with education and 
um, was seeing it firsthand and, and being able to talk about it and to actively change our lives in hopes of actively changing somebody else's, um, that was something that we came out with and um, definitely talk about in our presentations. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. 